Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. If you're listening to this on the audio feed, you might have noticed that this episode is a week delayed, but you can get early access to our episodes by becoming a paying member. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Poetry of Reality monthly Q&A. I'm Taryn Southern. I'm a storyteller with a deep interest in how science can improve our lives. And I'm thrilled to be back here with Richard for our third Q&A session. We always have so much fun with these. And he is going to answer all of your burning questions that you have submitted via YouTube, email, and various social media channels. So how are you today, Richard? I'm fine. I got cold. But apart from that, I hope I'll, I'll bear up. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, hopefully this won't be too painful then. So we'll start with the first question. This is from Twitter. The question is, is anyone qualified to be an atheist? Is anyone qualified to be an atheist? I presume that what lies behind that is the thought that we could never be sure of anything not being the case, and therefore nobody is really qualified to know that there can be no, that there is no God. Of course, that's true in a trivial sense, but it's also true of fairies and leprechauns and, and flying teapots and everything else. So I, I'm not sure what the purport of the question is, but if that is the, the aim of the question, then that will be my answer, that um, we are as qualified to be atheists as we are qualified to be a fairyists and a teapotists and a leprechaunists. I love that answer. That's great. Okay, your, your second question came via email. Uh, the person asking this question said, I've recently been asking ChatGPT about God, religion, in particular, the obvious questions like, does God exist? Did God create the universe? And I was quite alarmed to find that it will neither confirm nor deny the existence of God. This is supposed to be AI. I don't believe in God, and I think belief in God has got us into the current situation in the Middle East. So why is society perpetuating this lie via ChatGPT and AI? You can't seriously be surprised that ChatGPT wouldn't give a straight answer to a question like that. It's bland. It's milk and water. It, it wouldn't give a definite answer to a question like that. It, it's supposed to give a sort of impartial distillation of, of what various people would say. So I think you have to make up your own mind, as obviously you have, and I'm delighted you have made up your own mind. Don't ask ChatGPT to make up your mind for you. And if I can add to that, I decided to actually go to GPT myself, ask the same questions he asked to see what they put in. And it was true. They it neither confirmed nor denied the existence of God, but it did a nice job of sort of exploring the nuance of the sociocultural sure. yes. forces that determine whether someone does. And what I find with these kinds of things is it's always about the specific questions that are asked afterwards. So I asked GPT what they, how they defined God or how people define God. And it gave a whole plethora of oh, answers. Then you, get a, you get a good answer to that. You do, because it includes the abstract impersonal force that could even just be the Big Bang, the light. So, um, you know, I think a lot of it just comes down to how you actually articulate the question. Yes, I'm always very unsatisfied by definitions of God that say something like, it, the, the universe or everything. Well, of course, if you define God as the universe, you believe in it. But that's not what people normally mean when they say they believe in God. They mean a personal consciousness. 
that lies behind the universe and created the universe and to which you can pray. Yeah, what's interesting though, in younger generations, you are seeing more and more of the co-opting of the term God to reflect this sort of impersonal light force. At least I have been seeing more of that. So it'll be interesting to see how you, I suppose, engage with those. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's an important question when we get into these dialogues to always remember not to make assumptions about what someone's definition is, because based on their cultural perceptions as a young person, they might have a really different sense of what that means to them. Of course, you have to define your terms when you ask a question like that. Okay, great. So this question came via email. It says we have, oh, okay, this one was a few questions that came via email based on an article on the evolution of aging. This article was written by Dr. and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, Huao Magal Hayes. And the article suggests that early mammals during the dinosaur era shaped human aging, uh, focusing on the pressure for quick reproduction genes rather than long life genes. And I actually took a look at this article and it essentially summarizes, summarizes itself under the longevity bottleneck hypothesis. Is this something that you're familiar with at all, Richard? Did this question come from Joao Magalhães himself? I don't know. Came via email. It doesn't say. So it doesn't say who it came from. No, this one does not. Um, well, I think I know what it is. I mean, I think the the idea is that mammals spent a long kind of apprenticeship in the time of the dinosaurs, when because the dinosaurs were so dominant, the mammals were small, like present day rats and mice, shrews and things, and which are very short lived. And somehow we've modern, modern, is it that right? Modern, modern mammals have sort of inherited this short lifespan from our mammalian ancestors when we were living under the shadow of the dinosaurs. I don't think it's plausible because there's been such a long time. I mean, something like longevity is something that is susceptible to much more rapid change than, I mean, of the tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. During that time, there would be plenty of time for lifespan to have adjusted itself to the ecological circumstances of each mammal species. Elephants live much longer than mice. Um, and so, no, I, I don't find it very, very plausible, but uh, perhaps I'm not doing it justice. I must apologize for my cold, by the way. I'm kind of croaking because I've got a cold. You're doing a great job. Uh, I do have a follow-up question of my own on this, because part of the hypothesis says that reptiles and amphibians, of course, show slower signs of aging and regenerative traits. Why do you think it would be that the reptiles would end up with that kind of degree of biological fitness, whereas we end up with better bio biological reproductive fitness? Yes, I, I don't know the answer to that. It's true that we, we can't regenerate our limbs and amphibians, for example, are very, very good at it. And um, lizards can regenerate their tails and so on. I No, I, I don't think I, I can really answer that. Okay. Thank you. One of his follow-up questions on this email was, what are your thoughts on how genomics fits into studying aging differences between mammals and other species? Well, I'm rather in favor of the Peter Medower theory of aging, which, well, the, the Medower-Williams theory, which no doubt he knows about, which roughly speaking says that any gene which matures, any gene which, which develops, which causes it, its phenotype to appear early in life, or, or late in life, Ima imagine a gene for getting a lethal disease like cancer early in life. Then imagine a, a variant of the gene that gets you the disease a bit later, another one a bit later still, and so on. It's obvious that natural selection will push the time at which the gene gives you the disease later and later in life. 
After all, we're, we're all descended from ancestors who lived at least long enough to reproduce. So the reason we age, the reason we, we age and, and die is that all these late-acting lethal genes catch up with us. You can make the point even more starkly by saying that a gene which has a pli pliotropic effect, that's to say, which, ha which has a dip, one effect, which has, has more than one effect, that's what pliotropy means, has more than one effect. One of the effects it has when you're young, another effect it has when you're old. So if the effect that it has when you're young is to, is to give you a very high degree of fitness when you're young, and at the same time kill you when you're old, it doesn't matter if it kills you when you're old because you've already done your reproduction. So that would be my answer to the question, uh, how does genomics fit in with the theory of aging? That's great. And that actually leads into the, the final question in this space, which is thinking about these different evolutionary pressures. How quickly do you reckon longevity can actually change? Theoretically. Our lifespan. Yes. If we, generation after generation, refrain from reproducing until later and later in life, so if, if we said nobody's allowed to reproduce until they're 40, nobody's allowed to reproduce until they're 45 and so on, you would gradually, or at least on the Medema Williams theory, you would gradually extend the lifespan for, the, for that reason. I'm not saying it would be a, a good thing to do. Yeah. Well, then you might see in cities like Los Angeles, New York, and London, where people are waiting later, yes. perhaps that will actually occur. Okay, via Twitter, this comes from Our Human Franchise, and he writes, why are you so concerned with religious acrimony? Is human aspiration for an afterlife beyond your scope? Acrimony? I'm not too sure I entirely, I'm not too sure I entirely understand the intent of the question, but... Well, uh, I suspect the questioner probably has not read The God Delusion. He's probably getting it secondhand. I don't think I'm very acrimonious. Do I look acrimonious? I may sound acrimonious now because of my cold, but I don't be very acrimonious. <laughs> is the idea of an afterlife beyond your, was that beyond your scope? Was that the question? Yes, beyond your scope. What a weird word to use, scope. I mean, do I think it plausible? No, I don't think it's plausible, but I, I mean, beyond my scope is not the right way to put it. I would say, I think it's highly implausible because... Is the afterlife beyond your expertise, Richard? <laughs> it's beyond my expectation. And the reason is that yeah. obviously we... Our entire being, our, our soul, if you like, our thoughts, our consciousness resides in our brain. So when our brain decays, obviously, there's nothing to carry our thoughts on with us. So, so death is the end. That means we've got to live our life to the full while we've got it, the only one we've got. I love that. Okay, next question is from Balaji Kartha, and they want to know, is there any actual physical or chemical evidence to show why humans are the only creatures that need to make up stories for survival? Is it the other side of having the ability to communicate through language? Well, I think it's pretty obviously about language because you can't really make up stories unless you've got language. At least you can't convey them to anybody else. I suppose you could imagine them, but language is a completely unique human feature. Of course, many, many animals communicate in gestures and sounds and smells and things like that. But only humans have language. Only humans have the capacity to make up a story. I suppose the nearest approach would be something like the bee dance, which makes up a story about where food is. But that's a very, very functional, mundane example. So, so I think humans really are unique in this respect, precisely because we have language. And language is a very, very remarkable feature of the human species. And so do you feel that there's any physical evidence out there to show why humans are these creatures that need to make up stories for their own survival? I don't necessarily think we need to make them up for our own survival. Clearly, we do make them up and we enjoy them. Maybe we feel we need. 
Yes, whether we need them to yeah. survive, I, I don't know. I, I don't see why we should. It's so interesting because as a storyteller, a lot of times I actually think about my job as one where I'm in the business of finding the most biologically fit story. You know, what's the story that will become the meme that will get passed on and be understood and, and better understood by the masses? And it's kind of a fun way to think about language, you know, just what kinds of words resonate that capture our imagination, that create a sense of awe and wonder, and then what words do the opposite? Yes, it is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So like for you, I'm curious in your own life, have you found any purpose or utility for language or storytelling to help motivate you, let's say on a project or to inspire you in something? I like to think that most of my books consist of stories. I think that, I mean, that as it happens, they're true stories, but they wouldn't, but some of the best stories are not, are not true. Of course, they're fiction. Um, but the way I like to talk about biology is in the form of stories. And I hope that's why some, some people seem to enjoy my books because I, I am a storyteller like you. Yes. So that's our evidence of why humans like stories for survival or for perceived survival. Uh, okay. Next question from Dipanshu Battelle. They want to know, why do you think people tend to become communal? Is there any evolutionary aspect or is it due to conditioning by religion or beliefs? Communal, well, most, well, many, many mammals and many birds uh, are social animals and living, living groups. And there are lots and lots of reasons why animals live in groups. It's good for, to avoid uh, predation. It's, it's helpful if you are a predator to hunting in groups. It's useful for keeping warm. It's useful for all sorts of of, of reasons. There are many, many reasons to live in groups. Human society is something very special, again, because of language. And um, from even, well, most primates, it's probably fair to say, are social, go around in, in groups. And humans are especially social. And uh, since the agricultural revolution, we've lived in cities, very large groups. And uh, religion is part of the, of the sort of glue that keeps society together. That's one of the main theories about about religion seems to me plausible, but there are all sorts of other ways of. So question, the next question is from Pangaj Tanesia. I'm not sure I understand the intent of this question. <laughs> Maybe you can help me decipher it. They say, same old questions, same old answers. If God created everything, who created God? I've been hearing this at least since 1700. So I'm not sure if that was a rhetorical question or if he actually wants you to answer the question. Well, that's the question I ask myself, of course. Um, it's, it's one of the main, it's one way of expressing one of the main reasons why I'm skeptical of, of, of God, because it doesn't actually answer any questions. And I think that's probably what the questioner is getting at, that you, you superficially think you've answered the question by saying God made the world, and then, but you haven't answered it because you still haven't explained God. And, when, and the way I like to put it is that Darwin solved the big question about the origin of complexity, which is, which is life. Darwin showed us how you can get from primeval simplicity to the complexity which we know as, as life. And so if you think about what it would take to be a god to create the universe, it would have to be so complex that it's defeating everything we have solved in the Darwinian answer to suddenly postulate a complex being right at the outset of things. So that's my main reason why I don't actually believe in God. Makes sense. Question nine from Valentin Keen, nine on Twitter. Do you ever think cystic fibrosis causing mutation survives as an outlaw allele due to some currently unknown beneficial pleiotropic effect? For instance, a reproductive benefit of some sort or something to that effect. Whenever there is a, a genetic 
uh, abnormality, which is which is very, de very deleterious. It's tempting to think that maybe it's maintained because of some kind of pleiotropic byproduct. Um, I, in the case of cystic fibrosis, I, I don't have any particular reason to think that it, that's the case. But in general, it's a good question. Why do you, I mean, do you have any hypotheses on why these survive if there is indeed no oh, beneficial well, pleiotropic? No, I mean, they could be just new mutations. There's no particular reason why they, why they should be beneficial. But it's an interesting possibility that, that, that they could be. Okay, let's see here. Rosie Lombardi asks, why did Homo sapiens develop a sense of awe when viewing the sky and ocean? What evolutionary purpose did or does it serve? And how has this feeling been co-opted by religion? I think it's just part of a more general question about why did humans develop all their uniquenesses? It's not just a sense of awe, it's, it's language, it's, it's philosophy, it's mathematics, it's, it's all the things that make us unique. I think of them all as emergent byproducts of, of having big brains. All right, we're going to do this one just because it touches on my day job field. <laughs> so I, I want to know what you have to say about it. Stella Thomas on Facebook writes, scientific experiments have been conducted, which seem to confirm that telepathy is real. In one experiment, thoughts, as in neuron transmissions, similar to radio waves, were conveyed from Europe to Australia. In my own experience, in some instances, my thoughts seem to have traveled over 2,500 miles. Will we at some point be able to read people's minds without electronic devices? I simply would dispute the premise. I don't believe a word of it. I think there's absolutely no good evidence for any kind <laughs> of telepathy at all. And when such alleged evidence, nearly always, whenever it's been looked at carefully, it, it disappears. It's rubbish. Yeah, so I think what's happening here, I think what's happening here, if I'm reading between the multiple sort of logic jumps, is that work with brain-to-brain -brain communication in implantable or non-implantable neuroscience is sort of being conflated with the transmission of thoughts. And if you actually look really deeply... I would love it to be true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would, you know, I, I, I think it's, it would be fascinating. And I, I love John Wyndham's book, The Chrysalids, which, which is all about telepathy. But the, the, the evidence, time and time again, evidence has been alleged and it never stands up to, to proper scrutiny, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. But for those out there who are very interested in understanding what are the frontiers of neuroscience, particularly implantable neuroscience, and being able to read the actions of multiple neurons. It's very, very cool and very, very interesting, uh, but it is not telepathy. Well, well, I mean, if you stick electrodes in the, in, in the brain or put, or put electrodes on the skull, you can pick, you can pick up signals, of course. That, that's right. But transmitting to Australia, no. I really must apologize for, for my voice. I thought I could handle it today, but it's obviously, obviously not. You got through a lot, and uh, I think it's time for you to go get some tea and lemon and honey and take some time off, and we'll just... And whiskey. Save, and whiskey, of course, my favorite, yes. and we'll just save the rest of these questions for next. And next time, we are going to be doing a very fun, I don't know if fun is the right word, this is your producer's idea, not mine, but we are going to be doing a mean tweets uh, section of the podcast. I think we should call it terrible tweets just for the alliteration, but we can make that decision later. So in the meantime, if all of the people watching can continue to send in questions, comments via Richard's social media, email, Facebook, Twitter, all of the things, that would be great. And we will consider it for our next episode. And I hope that you get better. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, you can show some support by leaving a review.
Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM.